We have been reading through the book of Proverbs, and the reason we have is that it's uh, stock full of wisdom, wisdom, skills in helping us to live life more effectively. That's the purpose of the book of Proverbs. We're stuck in life. We have no choice but to live it. We might as well do better at it. The book of Proverbs is designed to help us make better decisions in all the fundamental areas of life. Wisdom is calling. The question is, is anybody listening? I hope we are, and I'd like to invite you to listen to this bit of wisdom, which is in Proverbs chapter 3. That's where we are tonight, uh, beginning in verse 1. We'll just look at a few verses. Proverbs 3, verse 1. Here's how it begins. My son Solomon, who wrote this, is addressing his remarks to his son, but by application, it applies to all of us who are sons and daughters of Almighty God. Solomon says, my son, do not forget my teaching. You know, it's not really likely that his son would forget his teaching about morals and ethics. It's more likely that he wouldn't forget, but that he would disregard. And that's the case with all of us who cross the line morally and ethically. It's not like we don't know the difference between right and wrong. It's not like we forgot a fundamental principle of morality. We deliberately disregard it. And Solomon exhorted his son, don't do this. Pay attention to my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. I want to show you something really interesting. I think you'll find this to be true. In the odd-numbered verses, so that would be verse 1 and 3 and 5 and 7, in the odd-numbered verses in this passage, you will see commandments. So we just looked at one. My son, don't forget. That's a commandment. All the odd-numbered verses through verse 12 Uh, have commandments. And the even-numbered verses tell us about the blessings of compliance with those commandments. So if you look at verse 2, we just read the commandment in verse 1. Here's the blessing contingent on obedience. Verse 2, for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. It's a good way for the original readers to remember the text and even for us. First, a standard which we are invited to live by. Second, the blessing wherein uh, it will come our way if we do. So uh, verse 2, length of days, years of life, peace, they will add to you. So one of the benefits of obeying the Father's directives, according to this verse, is, uh, is life and peace. And the word here is shalom. You know about this word, shalom. It means well-being. So according to verse 2, if we remember God's teaching with regard to morals and ethics and right behavior, then we could expect length of days, years of life, peace, general well-being, which leads to this question. Isn't Proverbs claiming too much? What I mean is many here and in other places are obeying the Word of God. They are complying with His standards, but they don't have length of days, 
Some are afflicted with many diseases, and their time here on earth is shorter than expected. And some don't have this measure of well-being. Some suffer grievous losses. Some experience depression, anxiety, and, and all the rest. And yet Proverbs says, if you simply do what verse 1 said, you could expect what verse 2 says. So how do we explain this? So this is a good time for a little bit of a lesson in biblical interpretation. It's called hermeneutics. It's a big word that means principles of biblical interpretation. When I was in seminary, that was the most valuable course I was required to take. And here's one of the things I learned then, and it has stuck with me. When you're reading the Bible, you have to be sure you can identify the kind of literature in the book of the Bible you're reading. So we have 66 books, and there's great variety amongst them. For instance, the Psalms, those are songs. That's poetry. But something like the book of Romans, that's not poetry. That is objective truth. The book of Romans is written as it was a legal treatise. But Proverbs is not like that. The form of literature we find in Proverbs is not meant to state with precision certain principles. It's made to, meant to give us statements of general truth. So, for instance, have you heard this modern-day proverb and Apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's a statement of general truth. What it's trying to say is if you eat fruits and vegetables, you'll probably be healthier than if your diet is candy bars and double cheeseburgers or something. That's essentially what that proverb is meant to communicate. And we would say that's a statement of general truth. But not one person here would expect that if you eat an apple a day, you'll never get sick nor have any need to make recourse to a physician. If you're in uh, Oregon, where my wife is from, and you ask someone, uh, what's the weather like around here? A, port, uh, a resident of Portland might say to you, oh, it rains all the time. That's kind of a, a proverb. It's not meant to be a scientifically precise statement. What they're saying is not that it rains all the time. There probably are one or two days in Portland when it doesn't rain. It means, generally speaking, in comparison to other places, we get a lot of rain. And so that's the sense with which we must interpret Proverbs. They're not giving us promises. They're giving us principles of living. The general principle is this. If we do things God's way, it will improve the quality of life. We'll have a measure of longevity, healthfulness, and a sense of well-being that we would not have if we lived contrary to God's word. So that's essentially what this is saying. Then it says in verse 3, don't let kindness and truth leave you. So again, that's an odd-numbered verse. Once again, it's giving us a command. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. By the way, two commodities which very few of us have in proper measure. Some people are very kind. In fact, they're so kind that they don't want to risk offending somebody with the truth that that somebody really needs to hear. They're just too kind. Others are so passionate about the truth, they're unkind in sharing it. They're insensitive and greatly offensive. So what we need here is a proper measure of both 
kindness and truth. And Solomon says, these are such valuable commodities, you ought to bind them around your neck as if they're adornment, as if they're jewelry. You should write them on the tablet of your heart. And now here's the benefit of so doing in this even-numbered verse, verse 4. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. And now verse 5 leads us to uh, a declaration that many here are familiar with. It says, trust in, now don't read the rest of it. If I were to ask you to complete that phrase, trust in, could you please tell me what some of the options are? Just yell it out. What you say? You can trust in yourself. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, I didn't hear what you said. Oh, you can trust in your heart? Yeah, that's another one. Absolutely. What else? You can trust in money, material things. No question about it. Are there any people whose uh, names you might know? Not specific names. Any people in positions? How about, how about this? Trust in the government. Okay. Um, how about this? Trust in your pastor. That's not good enough. Trust in your church, your seminary. None of that stuff is good enough. No, 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 no. Look how the phrase is completed. Trust in the Lord. So Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, he's not saying there's no room for trust in these other things, but ultimate trust has to be reserved to the one and only Lord. Trust in not a Lord, definite article the. Trust in the Lord. It means to lean on. It means to rest your weight upon. It means to express total dependence upon. Trust in the Lord. Now, folks, if we've already trusted him as Savior, what more is there for us to entrust to him? Everything pertaining to life, we are required to live as saved people. The job of trusting in Almighty God does not end at the point of conversion. It begins. If we can trust him for the one who has pronounced upon us forgiveness of sins, why can't we trust him for everything else we need in order to make a go of it in life as saved people? And what is to be the manner of our trust in the Lord? Well, uh, the answer is given in the next phrase, with all your heart, with the totality of your being. But what if your heart is broken? And it is for many even here tonight. What if your heart is broken? Are you to entrust even your broken heart to a trustworthy Lord? Absolutely. What if your heart is hardened? It not only hurts, it's hardened. What if your heart has come to be hardened by the throes of life? It's tough to be alive. There's abuse, there's exploitation, there's neglect, there's abandonment, there's grief. What if your heart is not only hurting, it's hardened? Are we to entrust our even hardened hearts to the Lord? Yes, the answer is yes. Can you see the phrase, trust in the Lord with all your heart? 
You don't worry about what's on the heart of the person you're seated next to. You bring whatever characterizes your heart. It may be broken and filled with hurt. It may be hardened by the throes of life. Still, you do the best you can, and you bring to Almighty God even your hurting and hardened heart, and you still, to the best of your ability, lean into him, noting that's all he requires of you. Bring me what you got. And do the best you can in trusting me. Now, you and I may think, by virtue of our life experience, that we know better than God what to do in life. Therefore, Solomon, in response to that, says in the next phrase, don't lean on your own understanding. He knows we're prone to do it. So essentially, he's saying in part A, lean into God, part B, and therefore, don't lean in your own understanding. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, I want to persuade you of something. I want to persuade you that God can be trusted because that's a legitimate question. Can I trust God? I want to argue in two ways that you can. You could tell me later whether this argumentation is persuasive to you. Uh, The first argument is an argument from uh, what we could call the greater to the lesser. What that means, if the greater is true, then that also means the lesser is true as well. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. So it, it, it goes like this. Can you please tell me what God's greatest gift is to you and me? Jesus, his son. Yeah, that's the greatest blessing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, meaning one of a kind, irreplaceable son. So his greatest gift to us is the sacrifice of his own son. So the argument from the greatest to the lesser goes like this. If God did not withhold from us even his greatest blessing, then how will he not give us the lesser things we need in life in order to be sustained? That's the argument. This is not my idea. It comes from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Listen. He who did not spare his own son, that's the greater blessing, but delivered him up for us all. Now this question, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see what Paul is saying? If God didn't withhold his only begotten son, the greatest, most valued possession he has, if he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So argument number one, designed to persuade you and me that God can be trusted, is based on this argument from the greater to the lesser. The cross and what happened on it tells me that I can trust God for all else that I need, for he didn't withhold the greatest remedy for my greatest need, his son. And then argument number two has to do with the way God has dealt with uh, people who have trusted him before you and I came around. So argument number two essentially says, let's check out God's track record with other people so as to see if he can be trusted. Now to do this, I want to call your attention to a few verses in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, many of you know this as the the crucifixion psalm. 
Uh, you'll see why. Anyway, Psalm 22, let me read to you a few verses. Here's verse 1. My God. Repeat it again. My God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Those words are uttered by David, king of Israel. David said that. I don't know precisely what his situation was that gave rise to this outcry, but it was pretty rough. He was in despair and anguish. He felt forsaken by God, and that feeling was not unique to him. In fact, I'd like to show you that the very Son of God experienced the same feelings. Because it was in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, uh, that we read this. About the ninth hour, Jesus, that's the Son of God, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord Jesus, in his agony, invoked the very words, David uttered in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before, in his agony. And so we see David, the king of Israel, Jesus, the very son of God, crying out to God at a time when they felt anguish and pain. Why have you forsaken me? Is their heart cry. David felt, in fact, that God wasn't even responding to him. Verse 2 of Psalm 22 says, oh my God, I cry. By day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I have no rest. David says, in spite of my anguished cry, which I utter day and night, it says, if you don't hear, I don't feel you hear me. Where is the answer? And so we ask the question, could David trust a God like that? He goes on in verse 3 to say, yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, even in the midst of his pain and despair, even in the midst of his anguish, he's getting a little concept of the holy otherness of God. He knows of the pretending gods who are not alive and don't act, but he's saying, no, God is holy. He's different. He's categorically different. He is and he acts. He lives and he intervenes in human affairs. And even in the midst of his despair, he's able to call on a truth embedded in his heart and mind, and he begins to give praise to this holy other God. And then as he rehearses in his mind uh, what he knows about God, he says in verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. See, he's bringing himself back to uh, God's track record with those who've gone before him. He said, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted. And what happened? You delivered them. And then he says in verse 5, to you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So this is the second argument. We see it couched here in David's uh, anguish. He's saying, I'm hurting now, and I don't have a very real sense of the presence of God right now. It's hard to find him in the midst of my pain and distress. But I know better. I know God is wholly other. He is alive He's aware, he's active, and I have it on good evidence because this God who rescued my ancestors is the same for me as he was for them. And so 
David is saying, you didn't fail them. You didn't forsake them. Their trust in you was not disappointed. You delivered them. Therefore, I can trust in you. As God was, so he is. Yes, God can, God can be trusted. Um, but what does this mean? Does trusting God mean uh, we have to put on a happy face and hide our pain and distress, fake it, wear a mask? No, it, does, it doesn't mean that at all. Do you notice in Psalm 22, David mixed anguish and praise? That's the way it is when emotions are peaked. In Psalm 22, do you know that's a song? And it became part of Israel's uh, worship material. They drew on Psalm 22 in worship services. Do you realize an expression of honest anguish to Almighty God can in fact be a form of worship and trust? Trusting God doesn't mean put on a happy face. That's faking it. Trusting God means opening up your hurting, broken heart to a God you know is so trustworthy, he'll take you just as you are. He will welcome the fact that you as a child, hurting though you may be, have come to the throne of grace to, re to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. So folks, anguish in life and confident trust in God are often intertwined. That's the whole nature of emotional distress. You have this fluctuation, and you move from praise and confidence in God to doubts and despair. But you're still moving, and you're opening up your hurt heart to a God who can be trusted. So I tell you, yeah, we, we can trust him. You and I can trust him. He's alive, and he is acting even during our times of intense pain and anguish. And the deeply pained yet wise person will do exactly what Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 calls upon us to do. And that is to trust in the Lord with all our heart, not leaning on our own understanding. Uh, folks, there's something embedded in this exhortation to trust God. It's this. Do you see that trusting God implies not trusting ourselves? See, this is the rub. Part A, trust in God. And the very next thing says, but don't lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't trust in yourself. Now, this is tough. That doesn't come naturally. Because by nature, we're self-reliant. We want to be self-sufficient. We put great stock in our own perceptions, impressions, thoughts, and inclinations. And this text is saying, stop doing that. Do you know many of us make crucial life decisions, even irreversible ones, in areas like marriage or finances or vocational choice? All of these things, do you know many of us do that simply based upon what we think is right, what we're inclined to do, what our impressions are, what we feel is best, without even consulting the Word of God? But folks, self-trust is not wise. In fact, self-trust is a very, very dangerous thing. And so you can see here, trusting in, in God includes a healthy distrust of ourselves. Hence it says, trust in the Lord, lean on him with all your heart, but don't put trust in your own understanding of things. So trusting in the Lord includes an honest acknowledgement that we don't know what's best for us. 
we're not capable of guiding ourselves. Therefore, Solomon says what he does in verse 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. In all your ways, keep him in mind. The atheist is someone who refuses to acknowledge the existence of God. Sometimes we Christians refuse to acknowledge the relevance of God. If in the practical matters of life we leave God out, haven't we become just like atheists in practice? I don't know how many people I've spoken to, and I'm guilty of it myself, who are on the verge of an important life decision. They know what position they're committed to, and you ask them, have you prayed about it? Have you sought God about it? Have you consulted biblical principles? If a person is honest, sometimes they say no. Well, I surely appreciate that honesty, but folks, we're acting just like an atheist. We're acting as if God is not there, but he is there. God is, and God is relevant. Therefore, we must not make choices as if he does not exist. We are to, as it says, acknowledge him in all our ways. And if we do, if we obey this command, now here's the blessing, If we acknowledge him in all our ways, here's the promise, he will make our paths straight. What does that mean? Well, when we acknowledge him in all our ways, not merely in formal worship services like tonight, if we acknowledge him in all the aspects of our lives, he will remove obstacles in our way that keep us from making progress in life. That's the principle that follows compliance with the directive. There was a man named John Gibson Payton. He was born in Scotland in 1824. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Island people in the South Pacific. One of the things he went to do was translate the Bible, put it in a language native people could understand. But it wasn't so easy. It met with many challenges. For instance, he found out, John Payton did, that this tribal group did not have a word for faith or trust. He really wrestled over this. How could he give them the Bible without coming up an equivalent word for faith or trust that they could apprehend? He really labored over it and prayed about it. Well, One day, out of the blue, one of the native people came running into his house. He was out of breath. He had run from quite a distance. And when he got into the missionary's living room, He flopped himself down on a large chair, and he said, in his native language, he said, it is good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And it was like a light bulb went off, and John Payton realized, ah, that's what it is. That's how I will translate the word word trust into their language. Trust is resting your entire weight on Almighty God, who is trustworthy. So as we draw to a close, I want to ask you this question. Don't think about it too long. I don't think you'll have to. What one matter is weighing you down with concern even as we sit here together tonight? It should come quickly to you. You know what it is. It's a concern. It's a burden. You think about it. You worry about it. You labor over it. 
This is private between you and God. Having identified that one area of concern that looms so large, it takes the very energy out of you. I wonder if you would take the next few moments, bowing your heads, closing your eyes, just to give you privacy with Almighty God, who is relevant, who is in existence, who is in this place. And I wonder if you would be willing to say to him, oh God, I'm choosing to trust this, to entrust this to you. I want to transfer this weight from my shoulders onto your much larger shoulders. I have been persuaded you are trustworthy. How could I not trust you, you having given your greatest gift, your own son, you having demonstrated a very trustworthy record of interaction with all those who've gone before me. God, I'm persuaded I can entrust this to you. This which is weighing me down, I want to, by a deliberate act of the will, transfer this weight from my shoulders onto you right now. I want to rest my uh, the totality of my weight on you right now. Oh, God, I want to trust in you in this area, and I'm tired of leaning on my own understanding and reflection and contemplation and all the rest. I've got to get it over with. I came into this place with it. I want to leave without it. Lord, it's a real issue but undue concern over it in the face of a trustworthy God makes no sense, and it's sapping me of energy. Oh, God, I want to transact the business of transfer right now. I want to transfer this weight from me onto you. Folks, take a few minutes and do that with Almighty God, even as you sit there. Oh, God, what we just did has been like a breath of fresh air. We've inhaled and exhaled the burden of it all on you. You invite us to come to me. That's what you said. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We can trust you for it. You have a good track record. O oh God in heaven, you command us to trust in you with all our heart, though it be broken and even a tad bit hardened. And in contrast to it, you exhort us not to lean on our own understanding, plans, expectations, reflections, contemplations. Oh God. You tell us that in all our ways, we are to acknowledge you, not being like the atheist. We're to acknowledge not only your existence, but your relevance and concern and trustworthiness. And then you say to us, you will make our paths straight. 
Nobody else, no other organization, no entity. You say, trust me, I'll remove obstacles in your way. I'll begin to straighten out paths that you have made crooked through bad decisions. I'll help you to make progress in life. The key to it is to trust me. Oh, God in heaven, we've trusted you for salvation. Please put it in us now to trust you for sustenance in life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.